Well, good morning. Uh, what, a, what a touching service. Um, Joanna, thank you for your very beautiful share, very vulnerable share. We're, we're very grateful for that. Uh, it's extremely special. And, um, and thank you for your great worship. Uh, I, I praise God for songs like Amazing Grace. I was at Wembley yesterday, and um, they sung Abide With Me. And they actually sung it. It was extraordinary. If people, it was treated with great respect. And I suddenly realized this was the stadium singing about the kingdom. Half the people probably didn't know that. But uh, it, was still, it was still very moving and, and very special. I'm grateful for these songs that have worked their way into general consciousness. It's beautiful, isn't it? And Amazing Grace is one of them. I know so many non-believers who know that song. Um, pray that that song will take root in their hearts. Our great friend Jay John um, texted me this morning. He was at Singapore over the weekend, and 1,200 people responded to the message in, uh, in the National Stadium out of 55,000 who went to, to here. So there is great work going on in the kingdom, and that is what our subject is today. We're talking about building God's kingdom. So shall we pray together? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for bringing us together this morning under your word. We pray for... Um, understanding now and we seek to mine the riches of your wisdom and grace uh, we want to build your kingdom and uh, we don't underestimate what that takes but nor do we underestimate the power that you bring so we go forward this morning close to you and invite you lord jesus into our hearts this morning to speak to us and guide us amen you might want to turn to the scripture in the Bibles, if you have a Bible near you, page 432. We're going to start in 1 Chronicles 28, actually. <clears throat> uh, so we're starting a bit before the reading that Charlotte brought to us uh, a moment ago. Um, this is an extraordinary story of King David, the great king of Israel. King David, you will recall, was a man after God's heart a man after God's heart, the only one in Scripture to earn this description. Extraordinary thing uh, for someone to say of you. Can you imagine if they said of you, Mike, you are a man after God's heart. He shared God's passions and intentions. We join him in Jerusalem toward the end of the earthly phase of his journey. We read in chapter 28 and verse 1, by the way, um, recommend those of you who are not used to studying Scripture, always start before the passage. If you're given a passage, start before, because you need the context. You need the context of where this is sitting. So we start in chapter 28, and we read that he's addressing, first one, all the officials of Israel, the officers over the tribes, the commanders of the divisions in the service of the king, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the warriors, and all the brave fighting men. This was a military kingdom that served God. This was a military kingdom, and this is an astonishing gathering of leadership in a military society. So David will be addressing probably about 2,000 leaders, many of whom were leaders themselves of thousands. So he is reaching from one step millions of people, literally millions of people. This is an astonishing gathering. What a sight it must have been. The greats of the kingdom of God all gathered together. David has been a warrior king in the true sense of the word. He's also in his nature still a great lover, the psalm writer, singer, and poet, the passionate man who danced in front of the Ark of the Covenant, so abandoned that he didn't care what anyone thought about him, including his wife-to-be. All his life, he had dreamed of building the temple. This was his great dream and his great passion. 
What a wonderful passion to have. The place where God would dwell in permanence with his people. The Ark of the Covenant was a temporary dwelling. David longed for the permanent dwelling. Now God will dwell with us. Simon Peter on the mountaintop, his first reaction was to say, let me build shelters to keep you here. This is the reaction so often of leaders who love the Lord. Please stay with us. And this was David's great heart. David had glimpsed many times the glory of God as Peter did on the mountaintop from the day that Goliath fell through countless of military victories. If we want a sense of his wonderful heart, we need only turn to his writings, Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. That is all David wanted. This only do I seek. But now David recounts to the gathering what God has said to him. God has said this, verse 3, You are not to build a house for my name. You are not to build a house for my name, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me, says David, from my whole family to be king over Israel forever. He chose Judah as leader, and from the tribe of Judah he chose my family, and from my father's sons he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he's chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And he said to me, Solomon, your son, is the one who will build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he is unswerving in carrying out my commands and laws, as is being done at this time. Well done, David, as is being done at this time. David is so caught up in a living relationship with God that he can quote him extensively without doubt or hesitation. This is what God has said to me. And what he heard must have been a terrible disappointment. It is not you, after all, who will build this temple. Wow. It's my whole life, God. Sorry, David, it's not you. Wow, Why? Because you've been a great warrior and have spilled blood on my behalf. Wow, that's unfair. How unfair is that? I spilled blood on your behalf, now I don't get to build the temple. And the great warriors present must have been a little upset too, right? Even a little offended. What's wrong with being a warrior? Right, I've risked my life for the kingdom. But God is saying something else. God is saying, you've been my generation of soldiers. You have fought bravely for me and you've ushered in my kingdom. You've played your part nobly in my great plan. And thanks to your courage, I can now establish the next concrete phase of my kingdom on earth. And it's the next generation that I need to do this. From fighters to architects, from warriors to poets, I now usher in peace and stability and flourishing for my people. The days of pure military might are over, and now I establish my kingdom through stability. David gets it, of course. David gets it. There is no room for ego. He's not an ego-driven leader. He will not see the temple himself, but in the words of Hebrews, he has faith in things unseen. David has faith in things unseen. He gives himself as ever wholeheartedly to God. He's honored that his own son Solomon has been chosen for this immense task. And don't forget, by the way, that Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba the product of David's only recorded time of sinful rebellion, the time he was tempted and fell away from God. How magnificent. God says, even that I consecrate to myself. Even that, even the product of your affair with Bathsheba, I consecrate him to myself. Not only is your sin forgiven, David, great David, 
after my own heart. Not only is your sin forgiven, but out of it I will bring the future for my people. Just think for one moment. Just think for one moment what that means for us and for our journeys, right? Those things you're ashamed of, stop worrying about them. Stop worrying about them. Consecrate them to God. There is no limit to his grace and power. See what he will do. If God can redeem the relationship between David and Bathsheba, there is nothing he can't redeem. Nothing in the world. And I want to look at David's response. David's response is absolutely extraordinary, and it's a pattern for us all. So entwined with David's heart, is David's heart with God's, that his only focus is to ensure that everything will proceed now according to God's plan and command. That's all he cares about. So we see him do three things. We see him do three things. First, he ensures that Solomon gets it. He has to ensure that Solomon gets it, that he, he, he gets the commissioning and the anointing, and that he has all the instructions that God has given personally to David, and that he has the passion in his heart, because this is going to be a massive task. So he begins with this awesome commission in the sight of the leaders of the people, and he says, so now I charge you, Solomon, in the sight of all Israel and of the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, this is not just a private thing, father and son, listen, you're going to be, I'm going to charge you in the hearing of this 2,000 leaders and in the hearing of the Lord our God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God. And if you do, you will possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants and mine forever. Solomon, do you get it? Do you get it? Yes? Yes. Notice David's profound awareness of his place in the great story that God's telling. This is not about David. It's not even about his son Solomon. It's about their descendants forever. And since David is the father of the kingdom, that is us. That we are his descendants. So David's foresight and David's obedience to God on that day has directly resulted that we sit here in Christ church. That's extraordinary. But that is David's role as father of the kingdom on earth. He commissions Solomon and he commissions his descendants forever. And chapter 28 ends with David saying to his son, be strong and courageous, borrowing from Joshua, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. Whew. Get it? Yes, Dad. <laughs> Got it. So, fairly straightforward. Fairly straightforward. It's between David and Solomon with everyone witnessing. Fairly straightforward. Powerful, but straightforward. Now, Solomon needs two more things. So you're Solomon, you've just been commissioned. There's no escaping it, right? Now I need two things. I need the means to construct, the means to construct the temple. No, no simple thing. We're, we're 1000 BC, right? You, don't, you can't just dial up a construction company. And he needs the unwavering support of the leaders and the people because that's how he's going to get it done. And David knows this. So we hear in the, at the end of, verse, of chapter 28, David says to Solomon, the, division of the, pre the divisions of the priests and the Levites, those are the leaders, the spiritual and the legal leaders of Israel, are ready for all the work on the temple of God. And every willing person skilled in any craft will help you in all the work. The officials and all the people will obey your every command. And as we turn the page to chapter 29, so bottom of 433, David begins to ensure this in spectacular style. So he begins by addressing the great gathering and says, my son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, 
is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man but for God. So he's sharing the task with the leaders and he's asking for their partnership in the work. And then it becomes clear that he's made an awesome gift of resources. He's provided hugely as king from the treasury. Verse 2, with all my resources I've provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, onyx for the settings, turquoise stones, all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. And then in verse 3, I've also provided personally, beside providing from the treasury, in my devotion to the temple of God, I now give my, I now, right now, give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. I don't just pass them down to my family. I'm sure I bequeath some stuff to my family. But I give my personal treasures to the temple of God over and above everything that I've provided for this holy temple. 3,000 tablets of gold of Ophir, 7,000 talents of refined silver. That's enormous. For the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work that's to be done by the craftsmen. I'm going to give from my own personal wealth you can have it all, Lord. This is for your temple. Now, what's fascinating about this is there's no hint of boasting. David's simply stating facts. This is what it takes to build the kingdom. This is what I have given. This is not designed to draw praise for himself, but it's designed to inspire the enormity of the task. It's going to inspire the people how enormous the task is. What a great leader. What a great leader. What he's saying is this is not going to be easy, but it's going to be great. It's going to be great, right? I ask of you a great sacrifice, and I begin by making it myself. It's like Gary Boldy, who says, I can only promise you force marches, right? It's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. And I'm going to provide for it myself. I'm going to set the example. I'm not asking you to do something I wouldn't do. So Solomon gets the task, and now Solomon has the means, which leaves one thing which is one thing, he needs the support of the people and the leaders. And then a wonderful thing happens in verse 6 and onwards to ensure this. The leaders of the families, says the chronicler, the leaders of the families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, and the officials in the charge of the king's work, all these leaders gave willingly. They gave towards the work of the temple of God. 5,000 talents, 10,000 talents of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And anyone who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel. And the people rejoiced. So the leaders give, and then the people rejoice at the willing response of their leaders, for they are given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced greatly. Wouldn't it be wonderful if this lot were our parliament? It just struck me that over breakfast this morning. Wouldn't you want leaders like this? Wouldn't you want leaders like this? I'm going to go on record and say, I don't want a leader like Boris Johnson. I'm sorry. I just don't want, I'm sorry. I don't know the man, but I don't want the way he presents. I don't want that. Sorry if you're a fan. I just don't want that. I don't want, I don't want the leadership we have in this country. I want this leadership. I want a godly leadership at last. I want a leadership that puts God first. Wouldn't that revolutionize our lives? Wow. Maybe that's our role. What are our, what's our role as leaders? Rather than sitting around the breakfast table like I do, going, I'm going to do something about that. What can we do? I don't know. I don't know. But David's unquestioning commitment and generosity, at least, creates this beautiful ripple 
And as he commits, as he commits, then the leaders commit. And as the leaders commit, so do the people. And this ripple effect will guarantee the building of the temple and the next great step in the coming of the kingdom of God. <sighs> and seeing this, David is so moved that he bursts out into one of these paeans of praise and worship, one of those moments when the Spirit of God takes over. Reminiscent of when he danced before the ark, which was the temporary dwelling place of God. Reminiscent of the days when he wrote Psalms to the lyre. Verse 10. Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. And those of you who know your Church of England liturgy will recognize a chunk of that, right? That's what we pray over the offering each week. There is um, a, uh, a, a football player. He's a Brazilian goalkeeper. I won't mention his club. Suffice it to say, he's just won a series of titles. He is a great Christian man. And um, a week ago, on winning the title, um, when everyone else celebrated, he got down on his knees. He got down on his knees, and he didn't just pray, he worshipped. He put his hands out, and he just knelt there on the ground with 40,000 people in the stadium, and everyone else celebrating, and the world watching on, and he just worshipped. And it was so beautiful to watch. He didn't even just pray. He, he, his whole body was given over to worship, and it was so noticeable, and the camera just grabbed him. And then the Times reported it, and the Telegraph reported it, and they all reported it. And most of them just said he prayed, but for those of us who are believers, we knew he was, it was more than that. He, he, was, he was just lost in worship. And it was so beautiful to watch. I was just so grateful that, you know, at some level, this young man who's in some sort of place of public leadership, right, just because of the skills he's been given, worships like that. And how inspiring that is. And that's what David does here. He's so excited and so caught up in God's plans for his life, his family, and his people that he doesn't spare a thought for his own wealth. His own story is so bound up with God's story that they're one and the same. But who am I? Verse 14, and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we've given you only what comes from your hand, he says. Everything comes from you. Lord our God, all this abundance that we've provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you in the first place. He's honored that God counts him even worthy to participate in the great story that God's telling. Being a man of the word, he's almost certainly recalling Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8, you say to yourself, Moses writes, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, says Moses, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce the wealth and so confirms this covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Where does our wealth come from? It comes from the Lord. How many people here know the great J. John Donut story, just so that I have a sense? Only about 15%. In that case, I have license to tell it. Sorry, those who know it. Um, so, actually, I realized, I realized the other day that it is 12 years since J. John stood in the cathedral before the Just Ten and told us at Pentecost and told us the donut story. I always think the whole church knows it. It's 12 years ago. So it goes like this. There's a guy um, flying out from Heathrow, and he's gone through security. He's got a bit of time. So he goes to a coffee shop, 
and, um, and the coffee shop's selling these donuts, so he, he, and they look really great, these mini donuts. So he gets a bag of mini donuts, and he gets his, his coffee, and he goes and sits down, and he's got a newspaper, and, he's, uh, and, and then this other guy comes up and says, so it's a bit busy. He says, do you mind if I, uh, I just sit with you? And he says, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem at all. No problem at all. So he's reading his paper, and he's just eating a donut. And then, amazingly, this other guy who he's never met before just leans across and takes a donut from his bag and starts to eat it. And, and, and this, our guy's going, what? That's really weird. No one does that. No one just nicks a donut out of someone else's bag. Anyway, he decides to ignore it, so he just keeps on reading his paper, like English do, we don't say anything. Just get a bit frustrated, you know, under the... And he starts to eat another donut, so, you know. And then, to his absolute shock, this guy, quite brazenly, right, he's not, like, sneaking them, he looks at him and he nods and he picks out another donut. So it's easy, another donut from his bag. And our guy's now really done found. He's thinking, flipping donut thief. What are you like? So he's there and he's like, whoa, where's this going to go? So he takes a third donut and he's a little bit like this now. It's a little bit, Ugh. And the other guy picks out a third donut. And he's, and he's going, no, this is not happening. And he's looking around for like candid camera. What's happening to me here? Anyway, it goes on like this, and he's getting more and more hard under the collar, and eventually gets down to the last donut in the bag. And incredibly, this other guy reaches down and picks out the last donut, breaks it in half, puts half back, and takes half for himself. And like, sort of, you know, cheers with the donut, you know, cheers with the half donut, and eats it. And our man's thinking, well, you, I've, no, I, I've seen everything now. Wait till I tell, like, my friends what happened to me at Heathrow Airport. That is unbelievable. Anyway, this guy gets up to leave, says, you know, bye, bye, you know, and goes off to catch his flight, and he thinks, oh, I've never seen anything like that. And so he folds up his paper, puts it in his briefcase, and as he puts it in his briefcase, there is his bag of donuts. <laughs> he had been sharing the other man's bag of donuts. <laughs> and what is the moral of this story? God owns all the donuts. God owns all the donuts. You see, we think we're giving and sharing with God something that's ours, but that's not true. God is sharing with us in the first place because all the riches are his. So whatever we have is from God's hand. And David knew this profoundly. So we're not to feel good and righteous about giving back to God, all we're doing is returning some of the stuff he's given to us in the first place for the building of his kingdom. It's not about how amazing we are. Verse 15, David says, we are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. In other words, without you, we are nothing. And it doesn't matter how we give, the posture of our hearts. Verse 17, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. You're pleased with integrity. Integrity, that means being whole, right? That means that what I think and what I say and what I believe and what I do is all in one line. Integrity, that's really tough. And you're pleased with integrity, Father God. You're pleased with integrity. And all these things I've given willingly and with honest intent, and you know that because you see the heart. You see the heart. You're not worried about what's on the outside. You're worried about what's on the inside. You see the heart. And now I've seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Isn't that significant? It's not about some shallow box ticking. It's not about some shallow box ticking. 
And nor do we give to seek some payback or reward. No, what God seeks is integrity in our giving. It's not about how much, it's about our hearts. Now, let's close with this. The sequence of what happens next. Praise and worship. First of all, praise and worship. David says to the whole assembly, praise the Lord your God. So they all praise the Lord. Verse 20, the God of our fathers, their fathers, they bowed down, prostrating themselves before the Lord and King. First thing, praise and worship, the most important. Then, celebration of the moment. Verse 21, the next day they made sacrifices. Verse 22, they ate and drank with great joy in the presence of the Lord that day. How wonderful. Seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? We're giving to the building of the kingdom, but we're going to spend a lot of money on celebration. But God loves that. God wants us to celebrate. He wants us to celebrate in the kingdom. He loves that. Loves that, loves that. We should celebrate. The celebration comes after the commitment. So we've committed, we've given. We can see the building of the kingdom. Now let's celebrate it, seal it, raise a glass or two or six in the honor of God. And wow. And then we ensure the future. Number three, the next scene in God's great story. Verse 23, they acknowledge Solomon, son of God, as king a second time, anointing him before the Lord to be ruler and Zadok to be priest. And all the officers and warriors, as well as all of King David's sons, pledge their submission to King Solomon. And the result, verse 25, the Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal splendor such as no king over Israel ever had before. My friends, this is what happens, this is what happens when we truly seek the kingdom of God. We give not because we feel constrained, but because we feel compelled. Not because we must, but because we can. We are honored to be a part of God's plan. We are honored that he's entrusted wealth to us. Honored that he considers us not slaves, but sons and daughters. Not employees, but partners. When we do this, when we give from our whole hearts, we unleash a power that is beyond us, like David did. Others are inspired and they give too. Our integrity brings in flourishing. God's great story is allowed to unfold as it should. And we are blessed and we celebrate and our children are blessed. And the next generation is assured and commissioned. And we take our place in the kingdom and prepare for us since the dawn of the age. Yeah? We take our place in the kingdom, prepare for us since the dawn of the age. So what will happen next? Well, the temple will be rebuilt, of, will be built, of course. We know that. And then after the exile, it will be rebuilt. And then the Lord whom David seeks will suddenly come to his temple, Haggai. And then the one born of David's line will come himself in flesh to that temple and will defend the integrity of that temple with passion and zeal and will become himself the ultimate temple, the one that will be destroyed and in three days rebuilt and the one that will ensure that God's dwelling place will be with his people. This is the Messiah, the one who will bequeath his spirit so that we're never alone, the one who will restore not just the temple but the entire kingdom so that there'll be no more mourning, no more tears, death or pain, but only joy and adventure and beauty forever and ever and ever. This is what David set in train that day a thousand years before Christ when he stood up to play his part in God's great story. So my question to us as we leave it today is this. What might we set in train today if we stand to play our part? Because we're not King David. We're not King David. We don't command the officers and the leaders of the hundreds and the thousands and the great warriors. We don't do that. But we are kings and queens. 
at many, many levels, we are kings and queens in the kingdom of God. How will you bring your kingdom part this day? How will you usher in God's kingdom? What is your gift to God's kingdom today? In pounds, but also in time, and in energy, and in heart, and in passion, and in prayer. What will you give to God? Well, it starts right here. It starts with you and me, not criticizing Boris over the breakfast table, but leaning in and doing what you know God calls your heart to give. Amen.